seated. We know quite well the phrase of the Declaration of Independence that says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm thankful that the founding fathers didn't say that they were guaranteeing our happiness, somehow promising it, because they knew they couldn't do that. They're very intelligent people. But they said that we are created with the right to pursue happiness. I think it was probably safer to say that phrase back then because there was something in society that was a little bit more geared towards their fellow man and, and living for the good of other people. And so as people were pursuing their own happiness, perhaps a little bit more then than it does now, the pursuit of that happiness looked like something healthy for society and, and all of those things. If you've been in your word for a while, you've been in church for a while, if I were to say to you that God wants you to be happy, you get this kind of friction going up your spine and you go, I'm not really sure I would say that. You may recall for years of being in this church that from this pulpit, it may have sounded the exact opposite of that, but I contend it was not. You see, I think that we pursue our own happiness to the displeasure of God because it's not that God doesn't want his people happy. God just doesn't want our version of happy. Because he's a caring father, because he's a loving God, he sees that our happy brings the biggest crocodile tears. That our, the pursuit of our happy opens a greater chasm, opens up a greater void in our heart, this, this thirst that can't be quenched. And so God is tired of his children chasing their happy, but he wants us to be happy. So what I thought we would do is spend some time in one of the uh, most beautiful of the Psalms this morning. In fact, it's one that launches the entire book. It's Psalm chapter one, because the pursuit of happiness is found in six brief verses in Psalm chapter one. Let's read it together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." Very common theme in our literature, in our warnings, in our movie viewings and everything. It seems like life always boils down to two choices, doesn't it? There's always two roads to take. Yogi Bear is famously quoted to having said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. It does us no good. We want the choice. Tell me which, what's waiting for me at the end of that road so I can choose which one I'm going down. And Jesus, of course... Uh, shared a very similar warning in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. 
He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You see what Psalm 1 is presenting to us, what Jesus is presenting to us are two basic options, blessing or life or death, destruction. It's very basic. It's difficult for us, though, to hear the words of Jesus because there's so much of the scriptures that is much more pleasant to hear. There's a lot of these golden rule type statements that society's even okay with. That's the kind of Bible you can talk to us about. But when Jesus starts sounding exclusive, when he starts sounding narrow, it's literally in his words. Even we in the church have have a difficult time swallowing the reality of what Jesus is saying. I, I don't know about you, but it seems like every time somebody preaches along the lines of check your faith, examine yourself, whether or not you're in the faith, I'm always a little bit shaken to my core. The fact that I do this for my day job doesn't give me any more peace than I'm truly in him. When I give in to some of those thoughts and I get drifted away from it, it's uncomfortable for me to hear the words of Jesus enter by the narrow gate. The very unpopular way. Instead, avoid the way that is easy, the one that is people are just pouring into. You don't even have to stumble around to find it. It's just wide open to you. In fact, the other one is the one you have to search for and do diligence to find it. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You know, our reaction to these statements, what you're thinking or feeling right now exposes something for you. And so I would encourage you to use this like a a warning light on your dashboard. What is the spirit saying to us this morning when we think about the fact that how I how I uh, ingest the words of Jesus when he talks about how narrow the gate is? If we're floating along in a in a boat that's. you know, maybe it represents our church or maybe it represents how we view the Christian life or something. We're floating in this boat. How we interpret the words of Jesus about the gate being narrow helps us understand how much of the world's water our boat has taken on. Whether or not our, our boat is starting to dip in the back because the world's water is just pouring in. Because I, again, I'm just by way of confession here. Well, I want all kinds of excuses and caveats when I hear that there's only two paths to go down. I, I can rail and rant and rave against culture and it's only Jesus and he's the only way. But sometimes when I lose somebody, if somebody passes away and I never saw any real fruit in their life, I want exceptions. I want explanations. I want to go back to something they, they might have briefly said 25 years ago, but that's what I'm banking on. It's difficult for me to, to wrap my head around the narrowness of the gate. And this is what Psalm 1 is warning us about. What Psalms 1 here is for us is a description. It's, it's simply spelling out who the happy person, who the blessed person is going to be, what they're going to look like, what they're going to behave like. It's just a description. It'd be nice if we could use it as a prescription and we could say, well, that's what I'm going to go do then. I'm going to go do everything Psalm 1 just said. And there's part of that that we'll talk about. But the psalmist is just saying, this is a matter of fact. If this person is happy, if they're truly blessed, these things will accompany their life. You'll see it. It'll be present. It'll be obvious. So what we're going to do is go back through the psalm, break down almost verse by verse, spend a few more moments just talking about what is the description of the person who's blessed, and then make some application as we go. 
The first thing I'd say is the description is, is that the blessed person, the, the happy person declines this broad way. It sees the gate for all that it is, sees tons of people going through it and says, not for me. We'll repeat verse one of Psalm one. Blessed is the man who walks not. This is weird because we're starting with a, a negative to explain a positive result. It's a strange thing. Blessed is the one who doesn't do what I'm about to say. Blessed is the one who avoids. And that goes against sometimes our religious mindset, our, our fleshly mindset of I want to do the thing that, that, that is clear to receive the reward. The psalmist starts off by saying, blessed are they that don't do a certain thing. So what are they? For one, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. A very common uh, literary form here in Hebrew poetry and, and writing would be this uh, parallelism, this, this, um, this poetic repetition of a thought. You know, there's, there's some, it's very common to say, well, he's not walking, he's not standing, he's not sitting, just to make the point over and over again, to, to beat it down in, in the, the reader's conscience. And there's certainly some of that going on here, but we can't deny the fact that as we get to know the scriptures, as we see how life plays out, that there's also a progression happening here. That what starts off by a walking then becomes a standing. And then when you've stood long enough, then you have to sit. Very basic progression, but it's important to break it down and figure out what is the psalmist warning us about. In the scriptures, walk is always equivalent to behavior. It's our conduct, our lifestyle, our manner of life. It's this general acceptance of some worldly philosophy, if you will, in this particular context that lacks this biblical evaluation. We're not scrutinizing what we're hearing. I was thinking about this this week and going, it's kind of like walking through a park where there's some major protest going on. You know, you picture the person that has the big megaphone and they're just walk, 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 shouting out whatever it is. We don't even have to imagine the subject of it to make the application. And there's a large crowd over there and somebody's getting their point across and they're rallying up some base or something like that. And people are just, and you can clearly hear the message coming from the megaphone. But in a situation like that, there's always people just passing through the park. They didn't show up for the event, but they can still hear what's going on. And I picture the person uh, that, that is being warned about here is the person who walks through the park who has their own agenda is going somewhere, but starts to hear those things and starts to walk a little slower. What are they talking about over there? And then you start to ingest it just a little bit more and it kind of makes some sense that there's this walking that happens. It's a change of direction. It's starting to get a little closer into the crowd. So standing then would, would connotate parking it just for a little bit. Giving yourself more time to hear it, to soak it in. Now the megaphone is starting to make a little bit more sense. So I'm going to soak this in a little bit, see what they have to say. Not sure where this is going, but I'll give it a shot. Then, of course, the danger is when that becomes comfortable, making a lot of sense. And you say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to sit down here in the grass. I'm going to let it inform me and I'm going to look like one of the crowd. As other people start passing through the park, they're going to look over and they're not going to distinguish me from the crowd. Now I have sat in the seat of scoffers. So in particular, the text is telling us about those that ridicule and make fun of the truth of God. And isn't that often what it boils down to? 
It, it never boils down to the substance of the ar- argument. After a, a period of time, it boils down to making fun. Somebody also pointed out this progression as being, it starts with doubt, which is what we've seen with Eve, right? Has God really said, would you really die? I don't think that's really the case. So Eve opens up for some doubt, which then starts to uh, turn into um, uh, an argument or a debate. You start to side with them a little bit and say, I don't really think that's really what's going on here. And I debate and then it turns into utter defiance. So not only have I walked through the park, I've started walking slower so I can hear the instruction. Now I'm starting to warm up to it. And pretty soon I'm spelling out my own protest sign. Now I'm one of the club. This is the warning. This is the progression that's happening. As far as the psalmist is concerned, he's saying, blessed is the man who does not go towards this progression of walking away from the law of the Lord. So he declines the broad gate. He walks away from it and says, it offers me nothing. There's nothing attractive about the fact that everyone's walking through there. I've been down that road. I've, I've seen the other side. I don't need to do that. That is the mark of a happy or blessed person as far as the psalmist is concerned here. Secondly, it's very clear from verse two that he delights in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. And delighting in something's a little bit of a, a weird word now. We don't, There used to be songs in the 70s that used that word, and I recommend you hear none of them. They're all uncomfortable. As as much of the 70s were quite uncomfortable. I was only a child in the 70s, but I've seen enough of the pictures of my mismatching plaids and all that. What was wrong with our parents? Parents, those of you that raised children in the 70s, what's wrong with you? Shame on you. But it's a strange word, delight. It's, delight comes from what we desire. If, if we are exercising a desire muscle, it becomes this thing that we start to obsess about, start to let uh, saturate our minds and our hearts. We, we move towards it like a magnet. Think about your, your early romance days. Think about the fact that when you're locked in a new relationship, how every little uh, form of communication... Actually, I was doing this. Kids, this used to be what we did. We used to write... On paper, I sound like an old guy today or what? Slamming the seventies, chewing out millennials. That's just crazy. I'm just going after you all. I don't even know what the next generation is after millennials. That's how I'll touch I am. So Gen Z's, right? Yeah. See, I know what I'm doing. This was what we used to do when we loved somebody. And, uh, and it didn't matter. You just wanted any form of communication. You wanted to, to hear what was going on in their life, even if it was just, I'll see you later or something. It just meant everything because your desire, your delight drew you to that letter. This is what the psalmist is saying. The, the blessed person, the happy person is one whose desire has been exercised towards the author of the letter. He cares about what he's about to read, what he's going to see. And this isn't just the law, like we would say the Ten Commandments, the the ten things that God said to do, but it certainly encompasses that. This is a much broader application of all of God's words, all the containment of it. They didn't have at the time of this this chapter, they didn't have the New Testament, but but all of God's law was in view here. And I don't know about you, but I don't typically look at the law as something I desire. When you're, well, today's not a good example because you probably won't be able to hit full speed. Well, some of you might be able to, but you shouldn't. Um, but as you're going down the road this week and you see 
uh, speed limit signs, ask yourself, am I happy those are there? Do I delight in the fact that someone's restricting me? You see, laws are meant to govern a people and to provide for safety and order and all of those kinds of things. But in our selfishness, we have a tendency to interpret all laws as the things that hold us back from doing what we want to do. It's quite the opposite of someone who's happy, delighting in a law. Strange place. It's a strange venture to even get there. So how, do, how does one enjoy that? How does one find beauty in that? C.S. Lewis says the law's beauty, sweetness, or preciousness arose from the contrast of the surrounding paganism. We may soon find occasion to recover it, he says. Christians increasingly live on a spiritual island. I was talking to somebody this week and we just said, you know, it just seems as though ourselves included, we were not judging others who weren't in the room. Just saying it seems as though we lack a, a, um, uh, just a, a, thinking of the word, forgetting the word already. That's what we're lacking, vocabulary. <laughs> I apologize. My brain is all over the place this last two weeks. So, but what we lack is a dependency and urgency on who the Lord is. And C.S. Lewis is saying when the dependency is there, when you, when you feel as though it's so dark out there and I'm on this island and the only voice I can hear is the one uh, uh, speaking to me, the sweetness of God's law, I'm drawn to it. Psalmist says that this person meditates day and night. Now, a few weeks ago, I tried to get you all to meditate in the aisles and you wouldn't do it. You know, we were going to cross legs, put our hands up and float around and everything. No one wanted to buy in. So I won't do that to you again this week. But, but we need to understand what meditation is in this. That is not just us uh, slowing down and blocking out the noise. What's going on here in the word meditation is a pondering, a plotting with what we're hearing, but with the intent to do something with it. I'm not just here to absorb and say, okay, well, that's good to know. It's what do I need to do now that I know this, Lord? There's also a weird thing that's going on in the word meditate. It's, it's murmuring. And I was like, well, murmuring, you're just like muttering to yourself. There's some of that. If you're memorizing scripture or you're processing some of the truths of the scriptures, sometimes people, if they were looking on the outside in, would think you've lost your mind because you're just, you know, talking to the Lord. You're processing through. That's certainly part of it. But it's weirder than that even. It's like when an animal is chewing the cut. When it's mowing down on grass or something like that and the animal's finally got its meal and he's just going, mm-hmm. yummy. Isn't that weird? I've, I hope I haven't ruined the verse for you forever. <laughs> but I needed to take this in this week. I've heard several different people present the same thing. I'm like, I can't escape the, the meaning of that word. But you think about this. If I am desperate, if I am hungry for the law of God, that is the the words that he shares with me, the hope that he gives, the life that he's breathed into his word, because I've, I've found it nowhere else. When I finally get my first bite of it, I'm like, oh, that's what I needed. Meditating. God told Joshua the same thing in chapter one of his book, seven through nine, he says to Joshua before he goes into the promised land, he's about ready to lead a great charge and do a great thing. He says, Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. 
Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Joshua might look like he's murmuring, he's muttering, he's, he's rehearsing it. But you shall meditate on it day and night. Chew on it, feed on it, let it fuel your next actions so that you may be careful to do. Do you see? We've got a whole bunch of Christians out there that are so uh, full of knowledge of the deeper meditations, if you will, of the scripture with no intent to follow through. If you've been around that long enough, if you were ever that person, you know that it's very difficult to relate to that person. They've got all the answers, but very little practice. On the other hand, you have some that say, I don't really need to wrestle with too much of the deep stuff. I mean, I'm just out doing. He says, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Verse nine, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened. And be not dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Someone has said that meditation really is a balance between theory and action. We need to strive for more understanding of, of who God is, the truth of who he is, wrestle with the deeper truths that we can't quite comprehend, but always do, to, do so with a view towards where does this go? Where does this take me? How am I being obedient to take the next steps that the Lord has put before me based on what I've just meditated on? This is what is described as the happy person in God. It's part of the description. Thirdly, He demonstrates results. Verse three, he's like a tree planted, not just happened to be seeds dropped or anything, but intentionally planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does. He prospers. I love the image of a tree here. I I love it all throughout scriptures. I love it in all other forms of uh, literature and everything or in, in movies or any of those things. A tree represents so many things to us. And those of you that know trees well know that I will only be scratching the surface of what this metaphor could do and could mean for us as it plays out. But certainly it stands for growth. That's the obvious thing. We expect to see a tree mature. We expect to see the one that we've planted over the seasons start to grow taller and spread wider and the root system dig deeper and broader. That's what we expect. If a tree doesn't do that and we keep looking out our window, we start to say something's wrong. Somehow, because we are operating in an economy of grace in uh, this day and age, that we have allowed for the church to not expect that same growth. That the church in general, the church of Jesus Christ, because of the grace that we've been shown and we want to continue to exercise, we somehow mean, think that that means that we shouldn't expect what God has planted for it to grow. But it certainly should. I can't be the best uh, judge of going around and telling you you're not growing. I could certainly help, and those of us that are in the faith can help with that. But what about the self-confrontation? What about the self-examination that says, am I going through the same things that I went through last season? Whatever that season is, if it's based on the calendar, or it's just I've gone through this trial before and I'm not handling it any better than I did before. Where is the expectation that I'm a tree planted by waters that is expected to grow? 
A tree also represents stability. It's not going anywhere except by a lot of force and effort. And so the winds can blow, the seasons can change, but that tree is still going to make it through. It's, it's what Jesus would refer to as abiding or remaining in him. That there's a stability that others around this, this blessed person will start to appreciate and be like, they, the wind just doesn't shake them, doesn't knock them over. Doesn't matter how brutal the storm is, they're still rooted deep. Then lastly, I'd say a tree is helpful in our imagery because it produces fruit. So much can be said about the fruit that believers should be producing. And certainly we focus on that a lot here too. If the Lord has called me to be a pear tree and you can't see any pears hanging off of me, you start to wonder what's going on with this guy. Is he growing? Is he truly stable? Is he planted near live streams? I don't see anything that we can go and just take and go, oh, it looks like a pear. Boy's doing good. There's no opportunity for that. Others are looking to see what we're producing for fruit. And if we've got nothing to present, they look elsewhere and move on. Now, there's a, a danger in this, though, I think, that we got to be real careful about. In fact, entire movements of the church have been built around managing fruit and, 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 and putting the pressure on you to produce a certain kind of fruit. Most commonly, it shows up in prosperity movements and things like that, that the definition of fruit is something that we should be fixated on and we should only accept that kind of fruit. And if that kind of fruit doesn't show up, then the Lord's not in it. But I don't see anything in this text that calls us to determine when the fruit shows up, how much is on the tree, how much of any of this is up to us. What's going on here is that we are held accountable to plug in to the root system, let the water do its work and produce what it will on the outside. The Lord in his season brings fruit that others can walk by as they're needing it, as they're, they're needing their thirst quenched or their hunger um, uh, uh, addressed or something like that and go like, finally, someone's got fruit. Thank you, Lord. That's all I wanted to be was a pear tree. And you just produced enough pear so that somebody could come by and partake. That's all I wanted. I didn't know when it would happen. I didn't know how much I would produce. None of that I was, I was tasked with worrying about. I was supposed to abide. I was supposed to remain. I was supposed to drink deep from the streams that you've provided, that you've planted me near. You see, this is a description of the blessed person. These things are evident in their life. Lastly, and this is a weird way of saying this, and it's, I, I don't mean to snicker at it because it's certainly not a pretty picture, but it's a, just a, a weird phrase that my limited brain capacity this week could come up with. The other description is he doesn't die. Verse four, but the wicked are not so, but are like chaff, which the wind drives away. I don't know a lot about the wheat process, but I do know that what was in mind here is that these threshing floors for wheat would be up on high hills so that the wind would just be whipping across. People would drag the wheat up there and then the chaff, the outer shell or the casing that's light and useless would be uh, needed to be discarded. And so the way that they would do that is just chuck the wheat up in the air so that the wind whipping through would just remove the chaff. 
It would pile up, sweep it up, do something, take it off, dispose of it, burn it, get it out of the way because that's not the focus. The focus is on the leftover wheat, the results, the produce. And that little light stuff that the wind, any wind can just come by and blow away is the description of the wicked, the description of the one who went down the other road. That's what awaits them. They won't be able to stand in the judgment. They won't be in the congregation of the righteous. Hear this for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. I image my, the image that comes to my mind is, is I, I picture my tree. I don't know if you've got hills and grass and everything like that, that you're imagining as you picture this tree, I picture this perfect uh, setting. And yes, you know, I'm, I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. So it looks like the Shire just saying, and, and that tree is there and I can hear the brook. I can hear the stream. I can see all of that happening. And I picture the one who planted me being on the same hill, fully aware that over the hill is destruction, harsh winds and all of the, the chaos that awaits the wicked. But he's not even paying attention to that because he's watching me. It says right there, it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He's caring for me. He's, he's concerned about the fruit that I'm supposed to be producing. He's concerned about when he's going to come by and start pruning my branches and working with that because he cares about me. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, they're over the hill. They're over there. He says it's not my concern at the moment. They will perish. It's a very clear picture. Good way, bad way. Good outcome, bad outcome. Here's where we're tempted to make this something that we can manage. In the next week or so, we'll be talking about how the gospel informs everything that we're going to be doing as a church moving forward, that it'll be our wrestling match with the gospel of Jesus Christ to inform everything that we're about as a church. And it's taken me a long time to to even get into the ballpark of understanding what I'm wrestling with when I even say that. And so hopefully we'll make it clear and we'll set some objectives and those kinds of things. But this is what it means when we say, what does the gospel do to a text like Psalm chapter one? Well, the reality is, is you and I are tempted to look at this in a moralistic kind of way. We're like, okay, I don't want to be the bad guy. I want to be the good guy. So I'm going to make sure I'm not, when I walk through the park and I hear the wonk, wonk, wonk from the megaphone, I'm just going to do this and I'm going to keep on walking. I don't want to be drawn into a trap. So I'm going to keep on going. I won't be the one who slows down. I won't be the one that moves towards. I won't be the one who sits down. I, I can, I can muster up enough determination not to get drawn into that trap. Or uh, I, I, I just want to drink deep from the water, so I, I want to meditate more. I want to moan when I'm reading scripture. I want to do everything that Brent just said. I'm going to soak it in. That's my Monday right there. My devotions are going to be weird sounding to where the family's probably going to be like, don't know what's going on in there. That's, that's not what we're looking at here. This is the challenge that we have. We have a tendency to look at everything based on what we can do to better ourselves through it. There's an aspect of that that we're held accountable to, right? We want to present a better sacrifice, a living sacrifice to the Lord. So as he calls us to higher truths, as he calls us to stronger application, I think we we strive to do that. But this is what it means to to look at this text in a gospel-centered fashion. Who do you know? that has executed any of this perfectly apart from Jesus. You and I look in this text and I know what I want to be. I know which road I want to go down. It's pretty clear. 
by, by way of confession again, I would, would love to tell you that I'm always heading down that road that is leading towards life, but there's plenty of times where the other road seems to make a lot of sense. Either I'm fatigued or I feel, um, you know, frustrated. I didn't get my way on something. So I start playing ball for the other team sometimes in my actions or in my thoughts. And so what the gospel reminds me of is that I can never be as good as the description in this text. You and I can try tomorrow. We're going to fail. That doesn't mean we don't try, but what changes is if he is the only one that's ever been able to be the description of this blessed man, if he's the one who's, who's able to carry these things through, to, to, to drink deep on the, on the, on the, the waters of nourishment that come from God, to delight and meditate on the law of God, then we need to start trusting him to be that for us. This is the beauty of the gospel message that we preach is that Jesus isn't just an impersonal force that we try to do these things so he doesn't squash us, but that we invite him in and say, since you're him, be him through me. I don't know how to delight in the law of the Lord. I don't know how to meditate day and night. It sounds exhausting. I know I'll fail by Tuesday, but it's not up to me. It's not even about me. It's, it's the King of Kings. It's the Lord of Lords who has been the complete and perfect fulfillment. I'm not saying that this is the prophecy of Psalm 1 here, but it certainly is in other passages of Scripture. But we can see from the description, this is a description of who Jesus is. And yet he offers himself to you and me to move into our hearts, to start cleaning things out so that what comes out of us, this delight, is genuine. Not something we have to go drum up, not something we have to work harder towards, but it's in reaction to allowing him, surrendering, submitting to him, moving through us. This is the challenge that we have is that Jesus is in every page of the scripture. If you say, I don't know how to delight in the law of the Lord. Next time you read through the Ten Commandments, ask yourself the question, why would he say that? What does he care about? Why did he give us those ten things in particular? What does that say about his character, his heartbeat, all of those things? Rather than seeing it as the stop, uh, the stop sign and the speed limit sign that's restricting us, what is it telling us about his great love? What is it telling us about his great mercy? It's certainly telling us we were never going to ever be able to do all of those commands perfectly. He knew it. He presented it anyway and says, I've got a solution so that I am your makeup, not you. This is what it means for us to be gospel centered. And this is what we'll be talking about, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. Well, I think it was good to get to church this morning despite the snow. And I'm very pleased to have seen all of you here. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to close our time in prayer. Ask the Lord to make these truths evident in our life. Lord, I do thank you, God, that you give us uh, the plain truth of of your word. Lord, I know that um, we had to move quickly through this passage. So, God, I know I trust your spirit to give us what we need to hear. And I just pray, God, that as we do strive and desire to be planted by streams of living water, that you would help us to trust in you to, to remain there that we would trust in you to produce the fruit that you've ordained for our life. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would walk in worship and submission and enjoy, that the blessing, the happiness of our lives would be seen on our face, it would be uh, felt in our conduct, that it wouldn't be a selfish pursuit of happiness, but it would be one that is chasing you down. 
We pray all these things, Lord, in your gracious name. Amen.